What's up, greetings, everybody. Happy, happy Wednesday, May 18th. Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. Hope you guys are doing well today. I see we've got a new person in the audience who I don't think I've ever seen the name before, except for a friend of mine who has the same name as you. So maybe you are my friend. Hello, Carson. What's up, Lauren? Good to see you here again. It's been a while. Um, really, really happy to have you return. And Mario, of course. What's up? What's up? Happy to see all of you guys here with me today for a very special episode of Historical Figures, which we haven't done in quite a while, I just realized. Um, we've kind of been caught up in all these other kind of really fun uh, sort of hot topics, such as the black hole image of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. And what else? I guess yesterday's conversation was a little bit interesting as well, kind of uh, comparing and contrasting, I guess, the the two astros in our world, so astronomy and uh, astrology. So, or I guess the the comparison was, was really just sort of the early early days of astrology and how they they were kind of looked at as two of the same which was really interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode if you tuned into that one. Um, we've got quite a lot of stuff coming up soon, which I'm really excited about. Uh, next week, a good friend of mine, Tony, is going to be joining us. Uh, he is the creator of Space But Messier, as in Charles Messier, the uh, astronomer, French astronomer, uh, not alive anymore, but you know, pre past tense. And um, Really, really cool individual. So I'm really excited to have him on for uh, having like an actual special guest interview as he's kind of called in in the past uh, very briefly uh, here on Space Talk. So super excited for that episode. I think that's going to be really fun. So that'll be next Wednesday. And then, of course, Monday, we kind of pick up with our uh, astronomical events that are happening. So if you want to tune into that. Um, but let's kind of jump into Vera Rubin, who is one of my favorite astronomers. Um Specifically because of when I sort of learned about this idea around dark matter, I just thought it was really fascinating how it got stumbled upon, which was all thanks to Vera Rubin. So if we're going to kind of um, do a little bit of highlight of her today. We're going to chat a little bit about um, dark matter a little bit as well. And we might go a little bit off track, but that's okay because that's what these podcasts are kind of all about. So let's see, let's propose a question, comment, or statement here in the in the chat. So let's see, we've been doing kind of a new question to open up the conversation every day. So for this one, let's explore the idea of water. Um, what is your favorite uh, thing about water? What is your favorite thing? I would say my favorite thing is how it can shapeshift. I think it's really cool how under uh, certain amounts of temperature and pressure, it can change from a solid to a liquid to a gas. And I think that's really cool. So I'd say that's one of my favorite things about water. Although I guess my favorite thing should be that, that uh, you know, it exists. Otherwise, I would not be alive. But um, I guess that's secondary <laughs> since I didn't name that as my first reason. So I guess those two would kind of kind of be up there. But what would be your favorite thing about water? What do you think? Okay. So Vera Rubin. So uh, let's see. So born in 1928, uh, she lived up until 2016. And she was, uh, of course, an astronomer, as I mentioned already. And um, she did quite a lot of work on few a few different fields. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up a, let's see, I want to use a different biography. I'm going to pull up... Um, uh, an article I found on the American Museum of Natural History uh, that talks just a little bit about kind of her her work when um, when she was younger. So before we kind of get to sort of the big thing that she sort of ended up being known as. So when she was younger, she was really interested in in space, really interested in the stars, and uh, wanted to know a little bit more about that. And had a supportive family. Uh, her father was very supportive of that and, you know, uh, assisted her in building her first telescope, um, encouraged her to go to amateur astronomy clubs and different types of uh, star parties, which still exist today and they're everywhere, which is why I, I really push them quite a bit here on Space Talk, because finding community that also are supportive and interested in very similar things that you are, uh, especially in the field of astronomy, is really important. Um and I would say more so important in the field of astronomy because 
if you're not getting yourself outside and looking up at the night sky, but you really want to pursue astrophysics, uh, I think it's something that uh, could just really kind of continually reawaken this passion of yours that you might have. Uh, at least that's how I feel. I feel like when I was disconnected from the sky and I was not really doing a lot of stargazing, um, yeah, the, the only sort of format that I had to explore space was really through uh, stuff that I would see online. And all that was great and everything, and the pictures are incredible, but uh, there, there's such a deeper connection where you can just look with your own eyes up at the sky. And so since we live in a world where there is just so much light pollution because of all the cities that we have, um, it can be a little bit more difficult to be connected to space. And so I think that if you can connect to astronomy clubs, this could be a really good way for you to, again, find community, have people to sort of motivate each other to meet up with their each other's telescopes and to uh, do some stargazing and learn some new things from, from fellow colleagues and friends. So she went on to uh, pursue an astronomy major. This was in 1948 when she graduated from the Women's College Vassar. And uh, she then went on to apply to graduate school. And she was told at the time that uh, women, sorry, women were not accepted to Princeton University, uh, to the astronomy program. And that was continuous until about 1975. So women were not allowed into um, the astronomy program at Princeton University until 1975. Um, and so she applied to Cornell, and that's where she studied physics um, under Philip Morrison, Richard Feynman, and Hans Beth. She then went on to Georgetown University, where she earned her PhD in 1954. And this was um, also under George Gamow, uh, who is near the George Washington University. So she kind of continued down this path for a little bit, you know, in academia, uh, doing a lot of work under other advisors, and then eventually started teaching for a few years at Georgetown. And she eventually took on a research position at Carnegie Institute of Washington, uh, which had an astronomy program, wasn't too large, uh, but it existed. And this is where she really started to begin her work in the dynamics of galaxies. Uh, she teamed up with Kent Ford, who was an astronomer that developed a very sensitive spectrometer at the time. And so her work started with galaxies, which does later lead to, well, her, her discovery. So um, her and Ford ended up using the spectrometer to sort of spread out the spectrum of light coming from stars in the different parts of spiral galaxies. So you're looking at there's stars that are in the outer regions, stars closer towards the center of the supermassive black hole, the center of the galaxy, just along the disk as well. Um, and they were able to measure their orbits around that center of the galaxy. So similar to how the sun and our solar system and the Earth are orbiting in one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way. We're spinning around that center of our galaxy, which is Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole. And so the, she, she, her and Ford were studying these, these motions and um, started to kind of notice uh, some really interesting things about their motions. They would notice that when you know, a light source is moving towards us, the, bright, the, the, the light would actually start to get brighter as it's moving further away, it would start to get dimmer. Um, and as this would happen, the wavelengths of the light would shift along the spectrum so picture the spectrum as sort of this like chart or this graph and as stars are approaching us the the wavelengths would shift into the bluer region of the electromagnetic spectrum or of the spectra and then as light would move further away from us they would shift in the redder region of the spectra and so Noticing this, this is what is considered to be the Doppler shift, similarly with sound. And so when things are starting to move closer to us, the waves are getting compressed. They are blue shifting, so they're moving towards us. As objects are moving further away from us or something with sound, the wavelength starts to get stretched out, and it is red shifting as it is moving further away from us, and that wavelength is starting to stretch. And so this is known as the Doppler effect. And um, this is what was being applied to sort of understand the motions of galaxies, the rotations, the orbital speeds, and all this other stuff. And so um, at the time, 
if you sort of just think about it conceptually for a second, if you have something closer to the center of that source of gravity, which is that black hole, because it's so much, it has a greater influence, that black hole's gravity has a greater influence to objects closer to them rather than objects further away because it just has more distance for that force to be applied. Uh, those objects in the center should be spinning faster than the objects all the way on the outer region, ob objects that are further away. This is something known as centrifuge force. Um, this is something where if you sit in a chair or on a swing, and if you're spinning with your arms and your legs just sort of stretched out in front of you or off to the sides, you're going to be spinning slower than if you pulled all your arms and legs in, you'd be spinning faster. And so this has to do with this distance uh, from the center of the torque. And similarly, with the center of a gravitational effect, such as this black hole. And so this being said, it was assumed that the stars at the closer to the center of the galaxy would be spinning a lot faster. Well, when Rubin ended up studying the Andromeda galaxy, this is where something gets really interesting. Um, so the outer regions of the galaxy were actually spinning faster, not slower. And if that were the case, there had to have been some kind of other gravitational influence on these stars in order for them to be spinning faster than the center. But there wasn't anything visible. There was nothing visibly there. There were no objects. There was nothing that was being really detected or picked up except for the fact that the speeds were greater. This is what eventually led to the assumption that there must be some kind of dark gravity, some sort of dark as an influence of something that is not visible, that doesn't illuminate light. And this is what later began to lead, led to the proposal of dark matter, where there must be some kind of body of mass is as based on Einstein's theory of general relativity. If you have a body of mass in space, it's going to have a, of some type of gravitational effect on things around it. It's going to have a gravitational force. It's going to bend and warp space, and it's going to affect things that are near it. And so if you know this, and we observe this with every other type of object in space, now why would dark matter be any different? There must be some kind of matter there that just doesn't illuminate light that we cannot see that has a gravitational influence on things around it because we're seeing it affect other luminous matter. And so this is the kind of tricky thing about dark matter is that there is there are distributive models that have been, you know, derived through data sets, through calculations, and then put into a computer and then a computer diagram is, is generated. And you can see where there would be sources of dark matter because of this type of influence of gravity in regions where there is no luminous matter. And so you might ask the question, well, what if it's a black hole? Because there are black holes we can't really see. I guess the only tricky thing there is that uh, black holes, we'd be able to see, one, possibly the luminous matter being attracted toward the black hole, or two, black holes would warp the gravity around it, warp the, the light around it, causing gravitational lensing. And we'd be able to detect that and see that and measure that because there's been quite a lot of observations of black holes already where this type of phenomena happens called gravitational lensing. So if this happens, then and you don't see that happening in these other parts, then it can't be a black hole. There must be something else that's there. Um, and so this is our current assumption of it, even though the physical properties of dark matter are not even really understood yet. They haven't really been like measured because we haven't like scooped it up and put it in a test tube to like bring back to earth and figure out. And so the physical, actual physical properties are, are not fully understood there there are theories there are predictions um 
that I don't even know what they are right now off the top of my head, to be honest. Uh, some particle physicists would probably know a lot better than me. A really great account you could follow on Instagram is called the Astro Party Girl. And that is P-A-R-T-I girl, as in like particle, astro particle girl, astro party girl. Really, really cool name. I love that. Um, and so, so she is specifically studying dark matter and dark energy and uh, would probably have some of the most up-to-date proposals of what this matter is probably like. And so before I kind of continue, I'm going to say one more thing about this dark matter, dark energy, dark, no, sorry, not dark energy. We're not talking about that, but dark matter slash gravity. Um, when I interviewed Neil, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on Instagram, he said to me, we started talking about dark matter and he just was like, he's like, you know, he's like, it really, like, I'm more comfortable with the term dark gravity because we don't necessarily know if it is matter. Um, but of course, the counter argument would be, well, we know that everything else in space that has a gravitational effect is caused by some form of matter. Uh, that's not just based on Einstein's theory of general relativity, but it's also just been observed several, several times within our universe. You know, thousands of times we just we that's what we see. It's how we understand at least our world to behave, our reality to behave in the universe. And so when he when he had said that, I thought, OK, like that's. That's a, you know, in one way, a valid argument, because maybe there is something we don't understand just yet about gravity that doesn't necessarily need to correlate to matter. Um, but based on sort of our limited understanding right now, uh, it would probably have to be some kind of matter in order to generate some kind of gravitational influence on things around it. Okay, Whew, that was a very long spiel. I'm going to take a break and read comments real quick. Um, happy to see everyone here, by the way. What's up, what's up? Uh, I see people kind of popping in and out. And it looks like Carson is calling us in. All right, so let's go ahead and take this call. Carson, you are on the microphone. What's up and welcome to Space Talk. I don't have anything to say. I just have to say I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Have you have you uh have you tuned in before? Yes, I have. You have. Oh, that's that's so cool. Are you really into space? Yes, I love space. Oh, that's awesome. Have you have you do you have a telescope or anything just yet? No, but I'm saving up. Oh, that's so so awesome. Oh, that makes me really really happy to hear. Um if you look up anything in your area where there's like an astronomy club, I highly recommend that to just like, until you get your own telescope to just like be able to, I don't know, borrow other people's telescopes and like look at the rings of Saturn or like Jupiter. Uh, I think that would be, that would be really cool for you if you haven't done that yet. Thank you so much. I have to of go. Course. Thank you so much. All right. Of course. Thank you, Carson. Thanks for calling in. All righty. Uh, let's take up our next caller. We've got Daniel. All right, Daniel, you are on the microphone. What's up? What's up? Hello, welcome to Space Talk. Um, just a question for you, but what got you so interested in space? I was 12 years old and I looked at a book of pictures uh, that were taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And I thought they were paintings at first. I didn't really know about astrophysics and galaxies in the universe. And um, that just blew my mind. Uh, I looked at these pictures and, and I learned that they were not paintings, but they were like real legitimate things taken by a giant camera in space. And um, I realized there's probably other planets with potentially other life on them. And I'm 12 years old and I just had like a brain explosion. <laughs> Ever since then, I'm like, I got to pursue this. I love this stuff. So... That that was that was me. Um, are you are you interested in space as well? What got you interested? Um, uh, I really it. Me and my dad are like, we watched a whole bunch of documentaries and stuff. But there was one that caught me in particular, like two years ago. It was about like Elon Musk building the rocket to uh to, go to space. Yeah. Like space, the SpaceX rocket. Uh huh. Oh, that's so so cool. I love that you and your dad um, that you guys do that together. That you're both into this. Is your dad at all like? Does he is he a, like an astronomer or does he work in with rockets or anything? 
he can pick out a couple of constellations, but other than that, I mean. I mean, that's still super cool. Like, not a lot of people can do can do that today, uh, um, especially in bigger cities because we can't really see the stars. Um, that's so that's so awesome. Well, tell your dad I say hello, um, and I'm really happy that you you joined today's episode. Well, uh, that was my only question, and thanks for having me. Of course, thank you for calling in, Daniel. Have a good day. All right. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. Anytime you guys want to call in, by the way, feel free to tap that call in button. Um, a lot of these podcasts I'll just leave open now so that um, you guys can always call in and say hello um, or ask any question if you'd like. Uh, by the way, if you guys are listening, um, the question I proposed for today, which I like to sort of start every episode with a question or statement, is what is your favorite thing about water? It's kind of a weird question. Um, for me, my favorite thing about water is how it can shape shift and how it can go from a solid to a liquid to a gas, kind of depending on its amount of pressure that it undergoes. Um, but it's not just water that can do this. There are other kinds of molecules that can do this. But I think that that's something really, really cool about water because who else loves a nice ice cold water on a very hot day in the summer? I definitely do. So uh, that is, so if you guys want to continue, you know, co commenting that in the chat, feel free to. I'm going to go ahead and go through all of your comments and questions uh, that are here. So let's see. Um, Lauren asks, what if we perceive uh, as dark matter is really uh, some other kind of substance outside of our experience that can affect space time like matter, but is in fact something else? That's a, exactly that is a really good proposal. And this is what um, a lot of theoretical physicists are working on, I believe. I, I, I would be if I was a theoretical physicist. Um, but that is something that I think there are probably more things about dark matter and dark energy that we don't completely understand. The fact that we just call it dark matter is, I think, a pretty big statement to sort of say we don't really know what it is. And um, what I'm hopeful for as our technology is starting to advance more and more, just because the generations um, of young humans that are being born now are being born into the the era of technology, the era of, of the internet, that I think that there's going to be some very interesting, innovative thinkers in our future that can start to tackle these problems better. So I do think that dark matter might not be any type of physical matter. It might be something... Uh, that we don't completely understand. It could, it could be a different kind of phenomena with the stars um, in the outer regions of the galaxy that are being affected. I will mention one thing that I uh, caught in a lecture once, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, what I'm about to say, but I did hear it in a lecture before, and it was uh, contradictory theories to dark matter. And one of them was modified Newtonian dynamics, or called MOND, which I'll get to into a second for what I remember. And the other one is emergent gravity. And emergent gravity, the idea around it, just think of the word emergent. And this is something emerging from something else. And so emergent gravity is gravity emerging from some kind of potential thermodynamic heat situation happening. Because the stars are generating a lot of heat. Um, they're generating momentum in the outer regions of the galaxy. So this is my understanding, my kind of basic understanding of it, is that the gravity could be an after effect or, or could have been something that was influenced by just the very behavior of these objects in the outer regions of galaxies, which could in turn cause for an increase in speed of these objects in those outer regions of the galaxy. So that's... That, I think, is, is probably a pretty logical uh, approach. Otherwise, I'm going to type in MOND real quick, and I'm going to look this up with you guys because um, I don't quite remember everything about this, but I mentioned it, so I've, I, I want to chat a little bit about it. Modified Newtonian dynamics is a hypothesis that proposes a modification of Newton's law of universal gravitation to account for observed properties of galaxies. Okay, so this is basically saying, um, you know, Newton's law of universal gravitation has sort of this broad statement saying that there is a, um, a, a, a certain kind of universal constant of gravity when you have the effects of orbiting bodies, 
within certain distances to each other and with a certain amount of mass, so physical, physical mass. And so this is a proposal of kind of adjusting those equations accordingly to what we're seeing happening with galaxies. So basically saying maybe we should actually be adjusting these sort of universal laws from Newton's law of universal gravitation to account for these things that we're now observing. And I think this is something really important to mention about science and sort of the evolution of, of, of science, especially the field of astronomy, is that we may observe something in the future that can be contradictory to some of our more fundamental laws because behavior of things on very large scales can be very different than the behavior of things on very small scales. We are very tiny as human beings compared to how big our universe is. We are smaller than a speck of dust, but at the same time, we're very, very big compared to things that make up atoms known as quanta or quantum particles. And so they behave even differently. And so all this stuff is being really explored right now in the field of like quantum mechanics and theoretical physics. And so I think that it's okay to maybe have part of our evolution of humanity start to change some of like, I guess our, our laws or our, our mindsets around how things are always supposed to be done. Because as we explore more of the cosmos, we're going to start to notice probably some pretty, pretty weird things. Even Einstein said spooky action at a distance because things can start to get really weird when it comes to tiny particles behaving in a very, very large universe. So that's again, a little bit of a rant, but um, just had to get that, that little thought out. Uh, let's see, we've got another question. Oh, we've got a great question um, from Daniel, which is, do you think Pluto should be classified as a planet? Daniel, I'm going to refer you to a previous episode here on Space Talk where I brought my very good friend, Dr. Kirby Runyon on here. He is a planetary geologist. He's a Pluto enthusiast. He's passionate about Pluto and dwarf planets. This is literally what he studies. And I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of paraphrase a quote of his, which is, Pluto is a planet. It's not a main planet. It's a dwarf planet. And there are other kinds of dwarf planets. Pluto's not alone. Um, and I think that it would have been cooler if the IAU or the International Astronomical Union, the, the ones who really make this, this decision at the end of the day of whether or not to classify Pluto as a planet, what to name objects when they're discovered in space. So the IAU... If, if they instead decided to group together the dwarf planets and include them as main solar system planets like us, Earth, and Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Mercury, Pluto, uh, Jupiter, uh, I kind of named all those out of order, so, so uh, just ignore that for a second. But that being said, I think it would have been much cooler to sort of teach you know, like kids who are learning about space for the first time and like, you know, whatever grade it is, fourth grade, third grade, fifth grade, to say we actually have way more planets in our solar system than, you know, what, what our parents were taught. We have so many more planets. We actually have like all these dwarf planets that were discovered and they're a little bit wonky, but they have their own moons. They orbit the sun. Their, their orbits are a little bit weird too. And, um, they still have some debris near them, but they're still a planet. Um, so to sort of answer your question, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, um, I think I also did an episode on Pluto specifically. The reason Pluto was declassified as a planet or a major planet, I'm going to specify that, a major planet or a main planet of the solar system is because of it still being surrounded by a lot of the other debris near it. And what I mean by that is that rocky stuff, space rocks, um, stuff that's out in a region called the Oort cloud, O-O-R-T. And all this stuff was accumulating around the sun when Earth formed, when Mars formed, when Jupiter, when all the planets began to form. But what's special about us is that we cleared our neighborhood, meaning we just have our moon around us. Uh, the other planets have moons too. Actually, Saturn has 81 
82 moons <laughs> and, and, and Jupiter has 79 moons. So it's a really, really crowded region near them too. Uh, but they all orbit their planet where Pluto is, is, is a little bit different. It does have moons, but there are also all these other pieces of broken rock and space debris that are still kind of surrounding these dwarf planets. So this is really one of the main reasons why the IAU said it can't be considered a main planet. Uh, the other reasons uh, usually to, to be considered a planet have to be in an elliptical orbit around the sun. And uh, uh, by the way, elliptical is just think of a circle and then you stretch that circle to make it kind of like an oval. So that's an ellipse. That is an elliptical orbit. An orbit is that, you know, circle around the sun, the pathway. Um, and so the other thing too is it have to it would have to be able to eventually form into a spherical shape. So it'd have to eventually be sort of round spherical in, in shape. But, you know, Pluto's also like this. It it does orbit around the sun, has an elliptical orbit. Uh, it, it's a little bit weird sometimes because it's smaller in mass, um, but it's still a body. So why is it not considered to be a planet? Uh, I, I think it would have been really cool if we did actually keep it. And in the future, that might change as well because these definitions sometimes change. Um, so great questions, by the way. I'm, I'm loving all of these. Oh, sorry, Carson. I just saw that you, you tapped the call-in button. So let's take your call next. All right, Carson, you are on the microphone. What's up? I have a question for you. Yes. How long does a star live? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to take this question and then I'm going to jump back to historical figures uh, for today's episode. So it's a really good question. Stars have different different timelines. Um, they're a little different than humans where we kind of have an average like sort of time that we would live till. Um, you know, we, we would like to say that humans can live for 100 years, but stars will live differently. Um, some stars, I'm going to look this up real quick for which type of star there are like our sun. So how long will the sun live? So we compare that with, um, let's see, let me just do this really quick. So is, the current estimate is about seven to eight billion years longer that, that the sun is going to live. So it will be living somewhere around for about 10 billion years. There are stars that can live a lot less than that, such as really super, um, super giant blue stars, their lifetime can be a lot shorter. They're only about 10 million years. So that's still really long to us. 10 million years is really, really long. But you compare that to 10 billion. What's really the difference here? A big difference is uh, some stars are born and they have a lot of mass. And so their cores are really hot. Their, their engines, think of their cores kind of like an engine and it's working really, really hard. And it's doing something called nuclear fusion. So it's starting to fuse uh, different types of atoms together to create new atoms. And it's doing this a lot and a lot and a lot, but eventually it starts to burn through all of its fuel and the engine is like ready to just, you know, kick the bucket. And um, eventually these types of stars will end up having such an unstable core that they'll explode. And when they explode, they'll explode and either turn into a supernova or they could end up possibly collapsing to, into a black hole. And so they don't live for that long. They're young, hot stars. They're very young. They live short lives. Um, and then they, they, they die pretty explosively. And um, they are some of the hottest stars as well. Hottest temperatures. Blue stars, always remember that. They are hot, hot, hot. Red stars tend to be cooler. They tend to be a lot cooler in temperature. Um, they can still go supernova, though, if they are big enough. So a star you could see at, the, at night right now, if you find the Orion constellation. Um, so if you look up Orion's belt, and I'll type this in the chat, Orion constellation, which, um, let's see, there we go. You may have heard about already, maybe from some friends or family members, a really famous constellation. If you look at the top left shoulder of Orion or the top left star, it is a red star. And this is known as Betelgeuse. 
And this star is, it just basically reached the time that it could be dying any day now, or it might have died and the light hasn't reached us yet. And so what that means is if when it dies, it too could go supernova and explode. And it won't affect us on Earth. It's too far away, so it won't reach us. We're totally safe. But what's cool about it is if it happens in our lifetime, when we see it at night, it could be as bright as the full moon, and if not a little bit brighter. Uh, but it'll be like really cool looking because it's going to be a supernova. Um, and that should look really, really awesome. But it won't last long. Um, estimations from what I've read online, and I don't know because I haven't seen a supernova in my lifetime, it could last for within about a week, maybe two weeks tops, and then it'll start to dim and get dimmer and dimmer. So hope that answers your question. Uh, there, uh, stars do have different types of lifetimes. Some stars can live really long. Some stars can live shorter. Um, and what's really interesting is stars like our sun will actually turn into a different kind of star. Think of it like this. The sun is in its sort of main main sequence right now is what it's called. Um, it's like sort of its middle age lifetime. It's in a, a middle age life. And as it gets older, it'll start to turn into a red giant star. It's going to start to expand. Imagine a balloon expanding and expanding and expanding. The difference from a balloon is it's not going to pop. What's going to happen is it'll slowly start to engulf the planets, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and it'll start to get colder and colder as it's spreading out. And then it'll eventually just start to lose its matter and it'll disperse into the cosmos. So imagine it kind of like, like fuzz or dust dispersing into the air. Um, but this will be a very, very long time from now. Remember, we, we looked it up. It would be about another four to six billion years from now. And I'm hopeful that we will become not only an interplanetary species, but I think that we're going to become much more of a an energetic-based species where we are going to be able to not rely on being physical matter anymore. We will achieve faster-than-light travel, and we'll be able to still have our awareness, or also known as a consciousness, without needing to rely on these bones and, and our flesh and our skin and our brains and our organs. But we'll actually be able to maybe, who knows, possibly upload it to you know some type of microchip, that's hardware, but that's still physical matter. Maybe achieve something more like Star Trek, where we can quantum teleport. And that gets really kind of, in a way, it could be sci-fi, but a lot that has come from science fiction can, and we've seen, eventually turn into very true science that we can actually create and put in our hands. And if we can think of it, I think we could really make it happen as well. So that's that's sort of my my statement right there. Um, but uh, but I, I hope that answered your question. I'm going to just wrap up here on the Vera Rubin um, moments that I just want to want to touch on. Um, so Vera Rubin ended up making these really big contributions to the field of astronomy. Uh, really wonderful scientist. Uh, she is no longer with us, but we can thank her for uh, her work uh, with, you know, fellow astronomers. Um, who, who were, where was it again? So some of the, the previous astronomers that she was working with, uh, as well as also Fritz Zwicky, uh, who also worked on um, stuff, stuff with uh, dark matter and, and early uh, stages of, of galaxy movements and sort of looking at the speeds of stars around galaxies and the mass and how that can have a contribution to, um, to sort of our understanding of how things move in space. So one more note I will say is how much, I'm going to ask a question. I want you guys to type it in the chat. How much of the universe do you think in a percentage? So say 100% is everything in the universe. What percentage of the universe do you think is matter? That's like you, me, planets, our dog, our cat, luminous matter, stars, galaxies. What percentage? Is it 50%? 90%? Is it 20%? What percentage do you think is the current estimate by astronomers that luminous matter or just really all physical matter actually is in the universe? What would you guys say? 
I'm curious to hear that. And I'm going to I'm going to play a little bit of fun music in the background while you guys give that answer. So what percentage would you say is stuff within the universe? And I will read your I love the comments coming through. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. This is so this is so fun. I'm so happy. This is so exciting. All right. Let's see if there anyone else want to leave an answer. Anyone else? Okay. Alrighty. So you guys are okay. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to give the grand reveal here. So it's estimated to be somewhere around 5% of the universe is matter like you, me, our dog, our cat, our stars, our planets, 5%. So that's a really, really, really small percentage, Uh, 5%. And then about 27% of the universe is made up of dark matter is what the current estimate is. And then the rest of it is known as something called dark energy, which is estimated to be about 68%. So so that's that's crazy. Think about that. Everything that we see in the night sky, stars, galaxies, comets, supernovae, all this stuff, it's estimated to only make up about 5% of our universe. So that means that we have a universe that is mainly dark, mainly cold, and mainly kind of empty. Now, I will give this, let's ha- let's take a big grain of salt for this. This is our current understanding. This could all change, but based on current calculations, measurements of our of our universe, that is what we're we're currently at. It only adds up to about 5%. And then Dark matter, as we mentioned, is this understanding that there's some kind of physical matter that has a gravitational influence. So it has gravity. So what does gravity do? What is, how does gravity keep us here on Earth? What is, how do you explain gravity to somebody? Does anyone want to type that in the chat? How does gravity affect us? It helps, you know, keep our muscles pretty strong. This is why astronauts who are in space for a very long time can start to experience muscle fatigue. They have to keep their muscles strong and work out a lot. It's estimated that if you want to go in space uh, and you want to be on the International Space Station, you have to work out about four hours per day. Who else has had a gym class last, last longer than an hour? I don't think I've ever had a gym class last longer than an hour. I can't imagine four hours of working out every day just to keep your muscles strong. Um, so since I, don't, I haven't seen any comments in the chat, gravity pulls on us. So imagine on a large scale of the universe, just like picture this with me, you have all, like this 27% of dark matter pulling and tugging on the universe and you have this 5% of luminous matter also pulling and tugging on the universe. So why has the universe not collapsed? If the majority of the universe was made up of things tugging and pulling on it, we would have collapsed, but we haven't. That must mean there's a, a counter force, a force pushing outward to make up for all of that pulling in. That's what dark energy is. That's the proposal of what dark energy is. It's a counterforce that pushes everything outward. And the reason the number is so high for dark energy at 68% is because of something called the Hubble constant. And I, I, I didn't expect to get into this today, but I'm just going to mention it very, very quickly. Um, yes, exactly. Casavage. Uh, uh, I hope I said that right, Carson, for your, your username. Really cool username, by the way. Um, we couldn't live on Earth without it. Exactly. We, we would go flying off Earth. If we didn't have gravity, we'd be, we'd be flying off the planet. And so with the 68%, the reason that's such a high number is because recent measurements have shown that the universe is expanding faster and faster and faster every single night, which means that the universe is accelerating like a car accelerates. That means that the speed is increasing each time at an increment. So it is constantly increasing. Rather than staying at 60 miles per hour, it's going from 60 to 80 to 100 to 120. So think about that with the universe. It's speeding up. It's accelerating in its expansion. 
And so if that's happening, that must mean that there is a greater number of an outward force than the inward force. And this is what led to predictions saying that 68% of the universe must be made up of this dark energy that's pushing everything outward. Um, and Hubble, the, so the Hubble constant or Hubble's law says exactly this. Um, if you look at the Andromeda galaxy, which is our neighbor, or it's, it's our nearest large galaxy, uh, which if you guys don't know about the Andromeda galaxy, the Milky Way, which is what we're, we are in, our galaxy, is going to merge with Andromeda one day. The Andromeda galaxy is a lot bigger than the Milky Way. So it's going to gobble us up. Uh, it's, we're going to merge. We're going to be on this gorgeous cosmic dance, this cosmological dance, where we're going to be getting pulled towards each other and, and twirling, and eventually we're going to become one galaxy. These two galaxies will merge to become one. And we we should be fine uh, because a lot there's so much space in between stars and planets that we might not really have major collisions. It it could happen because there's going to be a lot of matter getting pulled into all these different directions. So we might get thrown off our our orbit. Who knows? It's possible. Uh, but this will happen, you know, billions of years from now. And so. With that being said, um, uh, recent measurements have shown that Andromeda is approaching us because we are gravitationally pulling towards one another, but other galaxies far away are moving away from us, and they're, we're all moving away from each other. So a galaxy that is two times as far away from us is moving two times faster away than a galaxy that's closer. So imagine that your friend who is maybe like three blocks away from you next, you know, tomorrow is then going to be another three blocks away. And the next day is going to be six blocks away. And the next day is going to be, you know, 14 blocks away and then 36 blocks away. And they're going to be moving faster away from you. But your friend who's next door is going to move away from you slower. They're going to maybe be three houses down and then maybe 10 houses down and then maybe eventually a whole block and a half away and this expands so i hope that makes a little bit of sense as far as how things are moving away from each other so when this was noticed and discovered uh this is known as the hubble constant you can you can look this up it's a number hubble constant and it's recently changed um so that the hubble constant value is currently at yeah so this this changed it used to be i think it was closer to um I thought it was closer to 70, but now it's at 67.4 plus or minus a 0 0.5. So without all that, all that jargon, I'm just going to say about 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec, which I won't get into that unit just right now. Just imagine it as a speed and it's at this speed that's increasing every single day. And so this has been measured by looking at objects far away from us that are moving further away from us. Um, and so with that being said, it's understood that the universe is expanding faster and faster and faster and faster. And uh, the, as far as where we might lead to one day, it's possible that the universe will eventually just start to expand and just get really, really, really cold and could eventually just sort of I don't, I don't know, you know, just, just be very spread out from each other. It's possible as well that there could be a sort of reversal effect and there could be a, a sudden increase in gravity and the universe could collapse. Um, or the universe might reach a certain size and stay constant, stay at that size. So these are some of the current theories and predictions of what the universe might end up being like. Um, so I think I'll just sort of leave us there as we've kind of taken this road trip <laughs> in several directions for this episode. Um, but, but these are some of my favorite things to talk about. So I love, I love all the questions coming through. Um, I guess the last thing I'll mention is the idea of, of multiverses is really interesting. 
Uh, I am, I'm not an expert in that. I don't know a lot about multiverses, uh, especially because a lot of this stuff, I, I, I'm more so where my specific area of research was, was really on the early formations of solar systems. But all this stuff is really fascinating and I read a lot on it and I try to answer it to the best of my knowledge. Um, but as far as multiverses go, look up someone named Mishu Kaku uh, or, or, or Brian Green because they, that's where you could really start to learn some, some really interesting stuff. Those are two PhD theoretical physicists who study string theory, who study these ideas, who study multiverse theory, and um, also quantum mechanics. And, and, they both, and actually, uh, I think they both have different shows on PBS as well. So really, really good stuff. Great communicators as well. And if anyone is in New York, um, Brian Green started something called the World Science Festival, and you can go watch lectures, and I've been to them. Um, I'll send a link in the chat real quick, the World Science Festival. And it's such a great organization. And I've this was the first time I got to see Brian Green live, and I really did enjoy it. Um, also put in Michio Kaku, who is also in New York. He teaches at the um, City College of New York. And... Oh, he has a really crazy website. Is this actually his website? This is his website. Wow. <laughs> very, very fun website. Um, and I feel like there was one more thing I was going to send over as a link. I just don't remember what it was now. But either way, thank you guys so much for joining this episode. Um, let me just go ahead and read your messages real quick. Um, oh, great question. So from Sincere Feedback, which is... Let's see. Who is that? Sean. Sean, what's up? What's up, Sean? If a galaxy is expanding, how come Andromeda is getting closer to us? Because uh, we are so close to Andromeda that both of our gravita gravitational effects or forces are pulling on each other. So the gravity is stronger than the dark energy in the sense. So when you have objects that are closer to each other, this is why Earth isn't being flung out of the solar system. This is why Mercury isn't being flung out because we are gravitationally bound to our sun. We are gravitationally bound with the moon. Um, and each planet is, you know, the gravity within our solar system is stronger than the dark energy force that's pushing everything outward. So dark energy starts to really play a role on objects that are further away from each other on large interstellar scales, such as galaxies. And so that's, that's really sort of the, the main way of looking at it. Um, James Webb, the, the the James Webb Space Telescope um, is doing some really, really great research on redshift galaxies, which are some of the first galaxies to have formed right after the Big Bang. Uh, not right after, but, you know, after inflation happened and after all those early stages of when atoms formed and, and stars formed and black holes. But when the first galaxies formed, just, you know, after the Big Bang, these are the galaxies that the James Webb Space Telescope is looking at. And I'm very excited for when that stuff comes back. But um, if you want to look at some of the recent news, uh, you can just click the link I just sent, which is on uh, the, the NASA and ESA website. ESA is European Space Agency. Keep that name in your head because uh, European Space Agency, uh, ISRO, the uh, Indian Space Agency, uh, which is... Uh, India Space Organization, Research Organization, uh, all these companies are, are doing such groundbreaking work in the field of, of, of just space in general, space exploration. Uh, it all started with the Big Bang, exactly. And then we've got one more question from Sean, which was, I mean, in any explosion, everything that is part of the explosion gets further away from each other, right? Um, let's see, in an explosion... Anything that is part of the explosion gets further away from each other. I guess the only exception is an explosion, if you mean kind of like when a star dies, uh, is the core, the, that, that center core of the star. Imagine it like a rock. Um, that remains relatively stationary. Uh, and I'll, I'll get a picture for you guys. Um, Carina Nebula, I think, is a pretty good example. Uh, no, not the Carina Nebula, the um, Crab Nebula, I believe it was. Yeah, this is it. Uh, so this is a supernova remnant. And if you look in the center, it has a white dwarf star. Um, 
Or if you really just type in supernova remnant, this is so fun. If you guys have your computer in front of you, I highly encourage you to look up these things. Um, I want to find a, a perfect image for you guys because I can't quite make it out. It's a little bit tricky to make it out in the Crab Nebula. But when a star does explode, yes, everything starts to push away from each other. So if you look at this picture here, I'll just share this link right here. Oh, you mean the Big Bang explosion. Okay, got it. Um, well, I'll finish off this thought first. Uh, what's interesting about it is you'll have a the core left in the center, which will end up becoming a white dwarf star. So this is what we mentioned earlier about how stars kind of have different lives and they have different like ways of getting to the type of star that they are. And so the core of a star that exploded will end up becoming a white dwarf star. And so what it is, is imagine all of that, that matter being squashed down. Imagine, has anyone here ever been on a giant battleship like the Intrepid in New York City or the uh, Midway, which is in San Diego, or um, there's tons of giant Navy ships. Imagine taking the whole Navy ship and squishing it down to the size of a golf ball. That's what we mean by density. And so with stars, you have these uh, really massive stars that when they explode, they expel a lot of their elements but a lot of it that was kept in the center of a core is squashed and condensed down to a tiny, tiny white dwarf. And so they're very like just hard, solid, dense, like stars in space. And uh, there's a lot of really funky things about them too, especially if they end up in a binary system with uh, a red giant star, they can start to like literally suck the life out of the red giant star. They can start to pull on that star and eat a gobble up all of its matter, um, which is, <laughs> that can be for another day we can talk about. There's so many things to talk about. You guys are just like making me remember so many different things. Um, so let me share one more thing, which is this link. You guys should definitely bookmark this link on your website or on your on your computer, your web browser. It's astronomy picture of the day. It's a super great uh, website that was put together decades ago, like tens and tens of years, like a lot, many many years ago. And um, astrophotographers will will take their own pictures of space and they'll submit it here. And um, if you are interested in taking pictures of space, you can then submit this. I'm not. I don't work for apod.nasa.gov, but I talk about it so much. Um, and so this picture today is of the lunar eclipse, which was the other day, which was super, super cool. Um, but the reason I brought us to it is because I want to go to discover and then click on search. And I want to type in uh, nebula. Actually, I want to type in supernova remnant. Okay, let's see. Supernova remnant. All right. Or just type in supernova. Okay. For some reason, it wasn't recognizing the word remnant. So I'm going to just put in supernova. And you can get tons of different pictures here to sort of see what it looks like. But to now revert back to Sean's initial question, which was about the Big Bang explosion. So like sort of how everything started to expand. Um, yes. I, I mean, if you start from a super tiny point, and then things start to spread out, everything is spreading away from each other. Um, so that's exactly what is so interesting about the Big Bang. Uh, and what is our current theory is, well, if we're this big, we had to have shrunken down to a tiny point of non-existence. Um, that is sort of the jurisdiction right now. However, to offer a little bit of, uh, of, of um, contradictory opinion, is uh, a theory or a hypothesis, I guess. It wasn't too too backed up by, by a lot of evidence, but it was a very interesting uh, mathematical model of the universe, which was proposed by Stephen Hawking. You guys might know about Stephen Hawking um, from just his, his final years. Uh, he was in a wheelchair and he would speak through a uh, voice, voice device. And so... Um, he did pass away recently. I was pretty sad about that. It was, I think, in 2019 is when he passed away. And he proposed something called the no boundary proposal, which is an idea that the early universe 
did not start from a point of like non-existence and then it eventually like exploded into the big bang and then expanded into the universe that we have today. Um, his proposal was that there was always some form of existence of matter of, um, of light of size, but something had occurred that caused the expansion that eventually made the universe as big as it is today. And some ideas that kind of contradicted as well is that there had to have been something that possibly even triggered the idea of time, which is such a construct in itself. Time is this interesting thing of we require time because we are these bodies made up of atoms and matter that otherwise eventually decay. And if we didn't decay, would time be as relevant? If the bodies of, of mass and space didn't eventually die and decay as well or explode and recycle into new star life or new planets, would we need the idea of time? And so this is something that is a, a kind of tied in with this proposal, the no boundary proposal by Stephen Hawking, which is that there may have been a point where time wasn't necessarily relevant and there was existence and eventually things began to expand. And that that's, that's my basic understanding of it. That is, um, I bet that there are individuals who could probably uh, better explain that. Um, but what I'm going to do real quick is just sort of pull it up. If you guys want to pull it up and look at pictures of it, uh, it's sort of like taking a bowl and putting the bowl where the hollow end is on the on the bottom or on, on the surface of the table. So rather than having the bowl where like, you know, it's facing upward, you can fill it with milk and cereal. Imagine tearing it upside down. And oh, that's so cool. I type in the no battery proposal. My YouTube video is one of the first recommended. That's pretty awesome. Oh, wow. Didn't expect that. I shot that video a very long time ago. Uh, if you guys are interested to watch that, by the way, um, here you go. Let's just go ahead and and copy that. Oh, wow. This isn't even, hey, this isn't my main video. This was just something I shot on the beach. It wasn't even that cool. Okay. Anyway, here we go. This is a better video. Um, this one, I kind of illustrate it. If you guys are interested at all to watch it, here's the link. Otherwise, um, definitely there are more people you could be learning about these things from uh, other than me. This looks like, this is look, actually looks like a really good YouTube video of animations of the No Boundary Proposal. So here's this, so not by me, and here's the link. Um, anyway, all right, my throat's dry. I'm kind of tired <laughs> of talking, so I'm going to go ahead and sign off. We've been talking for an hour. Wow, 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 wow. More like I've been monologuing it, but I just want to say thank you guys so much for those of you who called in and asked such, such wonderful questions. This was such a fun episode. I'm going to have to rename this episode because it totally took a – a whirlwind of a conversation. Also, this ended up being, I, I should just talk about dark matter more often. This was like the most lit chat I think I've ever had here on Space Talk. Um, so just want to say thank you guys so much again for joining. Um, I hope you get outside if you miss the lunar eclipse. Um, it's okay. There's tons of space events that are always happening. Listen back to one of my previous episodes that are called Astronomical Events uh, for each week of May. I do them every Monday. So if you ever want to prepare for the week ahead for stargazing, listen in on Mondays. It's always at 3 p.m. Central Time. And I will prepare a sky chart and a bunch of sky charts and things for uh, both the northern and southern hemisphere. And if you tune in live, I always take requests for your city or area and I could look up where you're based and kind of look up maybe some cool things that you might want to catch in your sky. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much again for joining this episode of Space Talk. Uh, I do hope you guys get to get outside, do some stargazing, and just reconnect with the cosmos. Um, so I will chat with you guys in the future. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And until next time, add Astra.